The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. If you are new or, or visiting, I am Pastor Bill, and it is my joy to get to open God's Word with you uh, today. Uh, if you are here just a little bit before uh, the service started, you, hear, you heard Pastor Brian mention about a, a flat tire. I understand that's been taken care of. Ruth Wells went and took care of that for us, so I understand she didn't even need a jack, just lifted it with one hand and replaced the tire with the other, so thank you, Ruth. Well, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. As a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to, to grab one off the back table. Before we read, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord God, as we just sang a moment ago, how deep your love is for us. Because of our sin, because of our pride, our selfishness, our gossip, our grumbling and complaining, your wounds paid our ransom, paid the penalty for those sins and the many, many more. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for this time that we have to to sing, to pray, to be in your word together. We submit this time to you and we pray that it is honoring to you and that it also humbles our hearts and increases our desire to glorify you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, last time I was, I was up here, we, we took a look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. And today we're going to be focusing on verses 7 through 11. But I want to go ahead and read beginning with, with verse 1 of chapter 4 because there's an important connection between the two sections that I don't want us to miss. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? First Peter 4, 1 through 11, God's word says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be, sober, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves 
as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, throughout this letter, Peter is urging his readers to remember the grace that God has shown them during their time of persecution and suffering. He has encouraged them to remember who they are in Christ. That they have been called by God, that they have been called to be holy, that they are living stones. He has encouraged them to, to not give in to the culture, to not look like the culture, because they are aliens and exiles. This is not their home. And that leads to a certain perspective of things. If this is not our home, then we can glorify and honor God in our, in our attitude towards those in authority over us. He says that they will suffer, but encourages them to suffer well. He reminds them and, and us of Christ's suffering and encourages us to arm ourselves with the word of God, with the truth to help us through as we face various struggles. In our section today, he's, he's getting into some of what this looks like within the church. That we, as the church, are to help one another, to encourage one another, and to love one another. And in our passage this morning, Peter gives some practical examples of what that might look like. And because we are exiles, because we don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, we are going to seem odd. How we treat one another may seem odd to an unbelieving world. All right, so let's take a look at what he's telling his readers then, as well as us today to do. Our section this morning begins with verse 7, which says in the first part of the verse, The end of all things is at hand. Now, as we've been working our way through this letter, there are parts of this letter that, well, there's a lot of debate as to what Peter is saying, and, and this is one of those parts. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Just know that there is some debate as to exactly what Peter means by saying the end of all things is at hand. But briefly, was Peter claiming to know and teach that Jesus would, would come back in a few months or a few years and, and end this age and establish the kingdom? If so, then was Peter wrong? Did he, did he make a mistake? Verses 5 through 6 conclude with a reference to the final judgment. And Peter is continuing that with verse 7. I believe what, what Peter is saying here is the reason the end is near is that the, the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have inaugurated the last days. That we are now in the last days. The last days are not still to come. Events today are not setting the last days into motion. We're in them now. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross. So the end of all things that were at hand with Peter are the same that we're in today. Peter's already used similar language in 1 Peter. He said in chapter 1, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Or Luke said in, in Acts 2, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, 
it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Or as the author of Hebrews said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these days, these, sorry, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. As well as Hebrews 9, which says, But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we see this idea throughout the New Testament that we are now in the last days. So in our text, Peter is saying, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so he, with the word therefore, in verse 7, Peter introduces these, these practical demands of Christian discipleship. He is saying, therefore, this is how we should live. This is how we should be. Peter is saying that because his readers are are living in the last stage of a divinely initiated process whose outcome has already been ensured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We saw this in 1 Peter 1.3, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As well as in 1 Peter 3, when it says, Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter is saying, because of this truth, Because of this reality, because of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, where Jesus is now, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, their behavior and our behavior as believers in Jesus Christ should reflect that reality. Therefore, because of this, because of the times we are in, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Here we have a contrast From verses 1 through 6. Remember verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So it is, don't join them in that same flood of debauchery. Don't do the things that they are doing. But live differently. Look differently. Be different. Be self-controlled. Be serious. Be alert. Be of sound judgment. Be under control. Be clear-headed, focused. So we can also understand this command to be disciplined and and clear-minded. If we are living... If we are living lives that are, that are out of control, that are just pursuing passions and pleasure, that we are intoxicated by life, either from actual drunkenness, from, from alcohol, or drunk from the pursuits of life, to the point that we are not clear-headed, this type of lack of self-control and lack of clear-mindedness, Peter is telling us, this will, this will hinder our prayer life. So note that Peter is saying that that given that the end of all things is at hand, 
And he is going into what we should be doing, this this practical Christianity that Peter is encouraging here. The first thing is, is pray. So he is warning about doing things that would impact our ability to pray. Don't do those things because you need to pray. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So as Christians, well, we need to pray. And prayer is a far more important aspect of the Christian life than many modern believers seem to imagine. This is the, the vital communication between the children of God and their Heavenly Father. And while prayer is clearly to be part of the individual Christian's way of living day by day, seeking the Lord's wisdom, even in the small affairs of life, we must not forget that Peter writes to a church of believers faced by a world of unbelief. Here, it is most likely that Peter is drawing attention to the need for believers to be disciplined in their corporate prayers. The next verse The next verses clearly speak to the way in which individual believers should function in the community of the church, in their love, hospitality, the use of gifts, and so on. It's worth noting that a a more literal translation of this verse reads, be clear-minded and self-controlled with respect to prayers. Peter urges, therefore, that that Christians who are members of the body of Christ must be clear-minded and self-controlled so that they can properly pray. In this age, while waiting for the end, the church suffers persecution and ridicule. The church must remain a faithful witness to the truth. And this can only be achieved through the prayers of the people which demonstrate the church's complete dependence on the Lord. So Peter is saying that being self-controlled and sober-minded, both of these, both of these qualities Equip us to pray. The idea of being self-controlled and alert is the opposite of being drunk or asleep. And I believe that Peter remembered that he failed to pray at Gethsemane because he fell asleep and he was spiritually the weaker for it. In contrast, the Lord had felt the necessity of prayer and was the stronger for it. But listen, I want you to hear this. Effective prayer does not necessarily have to be lengthy. You know, it's been said that the great Charles Spurgeon, that he never prayed for more than 10 minutes at a time because he had a problem with concentration. He found it much better to pray just short snippets, but often. Now, I know for some of you, you hear 10 minutes, and even that feels like a long time. And it begs the question, Why do we keep listening to the enemy who tells us that God will only listen to long, well-rounded phrases which are full of deep thoughts? Obviously, this does not mean that we cannot have long prayers. But we need to stop thinking that they are somehow more effective than shorter prayers. Jesus tells us to pray, to bring our concerns or our anxieties to him. Scripture never tells us to write out a a five-page paper in 12-point font, double-spaced, and bring that to him in prayer following the proper, you know, ACTS acronym. We're told to pray. So don't put more pressure on it than Scripture does. Don't get me wrong. Things like acronyms or tools that, that help us to pray, those are great. Unless 
they actually lead to our praying less because we have made things that are intended to help into rules that are to to be followed. So we need to be a praying people. And if that looks like multiple short prayers throughout the day, that's fine. Peter's first concern is prayer. Peter is saying that the fact that the end is at hand should motivate prayers, not a complacent fatalism. Well, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do. Nor should it move them to abandon their responsibilities and relationships with each other and with their society. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So, keep praying and spending time together, blessing each other, serving each other, forgiving one another. I think we can all agree that maintaining a a vital prayer life is easier said than done, as most of us know from experience. Prayer itself may seem as futile or not working as struggles continue and even worsen at times. Peter is saying here, be clear-headed so we're not to panic about life's challenges. People who lose their heads don't pray, they panic. Jesus prayed when he knew his own end was near. As we follow in his footsteps, Jesus teaches us how to express our anxieties in in the midst of a hopeful prayer. We need to pray that that God will give us what we need to face each day. We need to pray that that when we sin, God will forgive us and that we would in turn forgive others. And we need to pray that we may not be led in temptation or overcome by evil. In other words, for the perseverance of the saints. When we pray like this, it indicates that we are dependent and hopeful. The end of our exile is near, so don't panic, but pray. Many express concerns about the times that we are living in. Peter is saying to us today, be self-controlled, be disciplined, be sober-minded or clear-minded. Don't freak out. Don't panic. God is in control, so pray. Pray to the God that is in control. Don't look for the answers in and politicians, and companies, and products, and bank accounts, but pray. How many of us can be struggling with fear or anxiety, and somebody will ask, well, have you prayed about it? And we can be ashamed to say, well, no. Peter is saying, pray. Make sure your mind is clear and focused, and you're not distracted by the world And pray. Then verse 8 of our text says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So we have a, a call for unity within the church here in these words. Why does Peter claim that such love is is above all? Because the church is a group of sinners redeemed by grace. Because we are sinners who both offend each other and take offense when no real offense is given. We cannot hope for a strong Christian community if we fail to extend to one another the grace that the Lord first gave us. So often things like church splits at the local or national level give sad examples of situations where such grace is missing. 
But Paul exhorts in Ephesians 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. He also said in Romans 12, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love is more than a feeling. Love is a resolve to do good to others, including the good of forgiving their sins. Boy, we can, we can nitpick. Small offenses are just different convictions. We can be petty people. So Peter is saying, keep loving one another earnestly. Basically, this is him telling us, it's not always going to be easy to keep loving each other. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to say this. But he says to keep loving each other earnestly. What does earnestly mean? Our love is to be real, sincere, genuine, be fervent or intense or vehement. You will notice that he assumes that Christian love currently exists because he says keep loving one another. He is concerned about the quality of Christian love. He's concerned about the sincerity. He's concerned about its priority. He says, you've obeyed the truth. You live, your lives have been purified. You've been cleansed from your sin. You have been automatically brought into the family of God. But, he says, recognizing that, Let's make sure that what is expressed amongst us as love is genuine. It's sincere. It's a priority. It holds preeminence. And it has a quality similar to the quality of the Lord Jesus. The phrase which he uses carries with it the notion of a a strenuous activity. The word here for earnestly means means the strenuous, outstretched, habitual activity of an athlete about to perform. In other words... The word which he uses is not a word which conveys some kind of mushy expression of something that is primarily emotive, but rather it's something which is tough, something which is true. So he says, I want you to love each other the way that brothers and sisters love one another. Tough love, true love, sincere love, genuine love, quality love. Our text says one another. Love is by nature relational. This is something Peter has been driving at throughout. The words one another appear in the next verse and in verse 10 as well. What Peter wants in the last days is a a one another kind of life. Now let's be honest about this. We sin against each other in the church. We offend one another. I know, let that sink in for a moment. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So love covers a multitude of sins. This means that we don't go around looking for faults in others. But instead, we do go around seeking to think the best of others. That we do not spend our time lingering over the past flaws of others. We always stand ready to forgive one another. 
After all, the end is near, and we're going to live with our brothers and sisters for eternity. Our normal inclination is to think the best of ourselves and the worst of other people, to assume the worst of others. This is a call to, to flip that around, to think the worst of ourselves, assume the worst of our motives and the best of others, to be charitable and generous. We remember Proverbs 10 that says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So we want to be quick to forgive one another. To not let bitterness or anger or hatred to grow and stir up strife. But we love. We forgive. We overlook where we can. We seek unity with one another. Now, let's spend just a a minute talking about what this command does not mean. It does not mean love sweeps sin under the carpet. It cannot mean that. It does not mean that love avoids the difficulty of confrontation. It does not mean that love distances itself from the responsibilities of discipline. It does not mean that there are not very real worldly consequences for sin. What it does mean is that love is ready to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive again. As Colossians 3 says, that love finds a way to return a silent answer in the face of fury unleashed against us. And also that this kind of love embodies what Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 13 regarding the nature of of these specific things. When love covers a multitude of sins, this is what is happening. Love is showing itself to be patient, to be kind, not envying, not boasting, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, not keeping a record of wrongs, not delighting in evil, but rejoicing in truth, Always protecting, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering, never failing. Look, here's the reality. Some of those sins, some of those offenses, they're not always going to be resolved. Maybe you, you disagree that there even was sin to begin with. Or maybe you disagree about who bears the responsibility for the sin. But our text says... Love covers. It's not fixed. It's not necessarily resolved. Just covered. Just set aside. Not at the forefront. We are to love one another instead of nitpick and find faults or refuse to forgive. We love. It's not always easy. It may not not always feel just. But as God has forgiven us, we forgive others. It's a sad reality that one does not have to look at the Christian church for very long before seeing that believers often do not love each other as they ought. One could look first just at something like the number of different denominations that exist. So often we can view genuine Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches as the enemy. I'm not ignoring that there are churches that that say that they're Christian that are far from it. I'm not talking about those. 
While it is true that, that many denominations were formed out of a legitimate need to maintain the purity of the gospel, it is also true that others started because individuals could not lovingly tolerate disagreement on matters not essential to the faith. Even now, what should be minor issues becomes major ones, and insults are hurled across denominational lines at those who share the true faith. Perhaps more troubling is the fact that even believers within the same church body have trouble loving one another. How many of us dislike others in our own church simply because they have certain quirks or have not progressed as far in their sanctification as we might like? As today's passage shows, this is not as things should be. Peter tells us that more than anything else, believers must love one another earnestly. He has encouraged us to do this before as a means of standing firm in the faith. Remember what he said in chapter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. In verse 8, he tells us to do this because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 8 says that our love needs to be the kind that covers each other's sins. In other words... The focus is on the effect of love that enables fellowship in spite of sins. Isn't that remarkable? Yet to an unbelieving world, we will seem odd for doing this. We must note here that Peter is not telling us that our love for one another provides atonement for sin. Or that he recognizes that we will experience a host of problems from, from other people, real or imagined. And that they will not be able to forgive and help them grow if we are not loving them earnestly. And if we cannot love earnestly, God's people will not be strengthened to stand firm in the midst of the trials Peter had in mind as he wrote this letter. Charles Spurgeon said, Love covers a large number of sins. Not your own sins, but the sins of your friends, so that you will not see them. Where love is thin, faults are always thick. Wherever there is true love in the heart, we make many apologies and allowances for the weakness and infirmities of our friends. Often we cannot see the faults in them. So then we look at verse 9 of our text. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The next thing that Peter urges here is to show hospitality to one another. So again, we have in view here the church. Show hospitality to your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is part of the love mentioned in the previous verse. Note he doesn't just say show hospitality, but it says without grumbling. Or without murmuring, without complaining. Do it cheerfully. Grumbling. Well, grumbling about what? Maybe about the the time and the effort that it takes to fix a meal or straighten the house. But don't you think that he means grumbling about people? Love covers over sins. Let hospitality be without grumbling. Love says, I'm just going to cover the things about which I could complain and grumble. 
Well, why do we need to be told this? Well, because we've all done it, haven't we? We invite somebody over. Maybe your spouse tells you, hey, you know, I invited the, the Phelps over for dinner. It's a month from now. And initially, maybe you're excited. Notice I didn't say which Phelps. I'll let you <laughs> choose there. So initially, maybe you're excited. But what about the night before? And suddenly it's like, oh, why did you do that? Then maybe they call and they cancel. And inside, you're celebrating. Because you got credit for the invite, but you didn't actually have to go through with it. Again, we, we've all been there. Maybe not, maybe not with the Phelps, but we've been there. And here's the thing. People have probably thought that same thing at times when you have been invited over. Ouch. And this is nothing new. This has been true through all of time. So Peter is saying, show hospitality with one another, with a good attitude. Be happy about it. Look forward to it. See, it is a time to, to grow and build relationships and encourage one another. So what does this, what does this look like today? It means that we open our homes to others within the church. It means while at church, we, we greet each other and we reach out and connect with new people. We should be hospitable with our individual homes as well as, as this house, God's house that we worship in. Maybe it means you, you set a goal for yourself to say, you know, hey, once a month, let's, let's invite somebody from church over for dinner. A couple or, or a couple of couples Invite a family and one of the singles or widows. It doesn't have to be just one household. Maybe it is. Or maybe it's a few households. Maybe, maybe you're an empty nester and you could have a young family over and mentor or disciple them. Share some of the wisdom that you gained raising your kids. Or the wisdom that you've gained in your marriage. It's not about having the nicest house or, the, or being the best cook. It's about inviting people into your life, inviting them into your home. It's about being, treating those within the church as family. Over the years, I've sat with people who are, who are telling me reasons why they're, they're leaving the church. And they'll say things sometimes like, well, we just don't really know anybody and nobody's ever invited us over to their home. And while that might be a valid criticism in that particular circumstance... I often will follow up with, well, did you ever invite anybody into your home? If we're looking to get to know people in the church, don't just wait around to be invited over. You do the inviting. Maybe you live far out and it's hard for people to come over. Or other reasons that are hard to have somebody into your home. I don't know, maybe you're, you're blessed to be in a position financially that you can take somebody out to out to eat or out to coffee. God initiates and guarantees our final salvation. We, we saw this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. However, he makes us persevere in it through the use of secondary causes. He uses the love of fellow Christians to keep us firm in the faith. Therefore, we must eagerly love even, even the unlovable in our churches. In 4.9, he tells us that one way we can do this is to show hospitality without grumbling. 
We should be eager to be God's means of strengthening others. And we can do this through fellowship with one another in our homes and by sharing our lives with them. Are you doing what you can to love earnestly? To overlook a number of minor offenses from other people? Or do you tend to hold grudges? Are you expressing your love for others in in the church through hospitality? Or do you routinely avoid fellowship with others? Consider if this is something that you need to bring before the Lord in prayer and pray for a heart change in these areas. Let's keep going. Verses 10 through 11 of our text says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is speaking to every Christian, not just elite believers, when he urges each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. We serve others because our gifts ultimately belong to God. They're not, they're not ours. We are good stewards of God's varied grace. God's gifts are gracious in two, sen- in two senses. One is they are given widely and freely And two, they are bestowed apart from any human merit. Because we receive gifts from God, they are never simply ours. Gifts, in essence, do not belong to us. We received them from God, but they are not our possession or trophy. So there is no room for pride, and we have no right to view them as a windfall. A gift is a capacity and desire for ministry given by God for regular use to bear fruit in the church. Capacity means gifted people's ability to advance God's kingdom. Gifted leaders mobilize people for causes. Gifted teachers and clear gifted teachers are clear and compelling so people learn. Encouragers listen, speak, and act to lift spirits. So Peter is saying that every believer, not just those in leadership of the church, is a steward of God's grace. Now for Peter, grace usually means the gift of salvation awaiting all who believe in Jesus. And to be sure, every gift rightly exercised points to God's grace. But this passage is not saying that we steward or manage God's saving grace. The grace of 1 Peter 4.10 is the grace that gives abilities and ministries to all. Scripture has, has several lists of gifts that the believer will have. Generally, not just one gift, but most of us have, have multiple gifts. Maybe that is prayer or hospitality, like Peter has already listed. Maybe it's other things. Maybe you're good at sharing advice and you have wisdom and discernment. Maybe you're good at coming alongside people to encourage them. Maybe you have skills with your hands and you come alongside people and work on projects or help them with projects. Or maybe you'd be good with helping with setup or teardown. 
Maybe you've been blessed financially and you're in a position to give money. Or you are wise with money and could give, give good counsel to somebody. Maybe you're someone who is good with administration and can help in areas of, of need as someone who's good with details. Maybe you're a gifted teacher and could be helping out in Sunday school. Or you're good with babies and could work in the nursery. Maybe you love kids but don't want to be up front of people, so being a helper in Sunday school is good for you. Maybe you're like Ruth and can change a tire. (laughs) The point with this is, is not to list every possible gift, but to encourage serving because the gifts that you have are given to you by God and are to be used by you to serve God and to serve his people. We are to use these gifts to serve one another. They may be used in context outside the church too, but here Peter is specifically urging us to serve one another with the gifts God with the gifts given to us by God. As we have seen through this letter and here again, Peter places an importance on our union with Christ. That the most important thing that we have in common is our faith in Jesus. It is our identification with Jesus by faith that enables us to put the sin in our life to death. Jesus broke the hold sin has over his people by suffering to bear our sins. If we are truly in Christ, the power of sin over us has been broken and we demonstrate this as we leave our past sins behind and are willing to be ridiculed by those outside the church just as Christ was rather than doing evil. Because we are in Christ, we can stand firm and live holy lives in light of the coming end of all things. One of the ways we do this is to love other Christians earnestly, particularly by showing hospitality to one another. Today's passage tells us that we can also stand firm and love our fellow believers by being willing to use our gifts to serve one another. Other passages of scripture make it clear that the Holy Spirit gives each believer one or more gifts to help edify the body of Christ. Specifically, Peter lists gifts involving speaking in service in 1 Peter 4.11 as manifestations of God's varied grace. What is in mind here is the fact that God has blessed the church with gifts that can be expressed in a multitude of different ways. For example, two or more people might have the gift of service. However, no two people will manifest that gift exactly alike. Nevertheless, Peter gives us general principles for the exercise of these gifts. Those whose gifts involve speaking, perhaps teaching or encouragement, must use them as those who speak the oracles of God. This does not mean that that the words spoken are infallible, Rather, they are to be spoken with the same care and seriousness that the prophets prophets of old would use. Likewise, those who serve must rely on God's power and not their own. When we exercise our gifts in love according to these principles, we will fulfill our call to glorify the Lord even in the midst of suffering. In closing, Peter does not give an exhaustive list of gifts here. 
He gives two broad examples that encompass many of the specific ones listed elsewhere in the New Testament. What are your spiritual gifts? Do you readily gravitate toward one ministry or another? If you're not using your gifts, find a specific area of ministry in which you can serve. God's amazing word to us this morning, I believe, is love covers sin so that hospitality, real heartfelt fellowship can happen because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is saying that bona fide, authentic love and fellowship is based in part on the covering of many sins. This is not sweeping things under the rug. It's not endorsing keeping skeletons in the closet. It's not renouncing church discipline. It's saying that, it, it's saying that at least this, probably more, it's saying that when we've done all the confrontation, we've done all the, the arguments and the exhortation, we cover it. Whatever side we are, that we are on, we, we cover it. We give it up. We bury it as a cause of murmuring. And then we turn together to God's future grace and take our united cue from verse 11, that we will so live in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you that your word is there for us to search and to consider and to study. We do come before you and we are thankful for the grace that you have shown us. We are thankful for salvation. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we ask that you would help us to grow in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and in unity. We want these things to become increasingly true of us, Lord. Where there is a need for us to ask for forgiveness to one another, we ask for the strength to do so. Oh, but Father, even in our pursuit of unity, we recognize that we may even be tempted to boast in that. We may be tempted towards spiritual pride, so Lord, please guard our hearts in that area as well. Keep our minds focused on the gospel. We confess that we have sinned against you. We pray that you would come and work repentance into our hearts. Help us to see you as you are with outstretched arms, a loving heart, and power to save. You be the glory. Amen.